Are you ready to be transported back to 1800s high society London? Because season three of Bridgerton is now playing only on Netflix. This season follows the story of the Tons resident wallflower, Penelope Featherington, as she undergoes a journey of self-discovery and empowerment where we see her truly blossom. Penn's emotional transformation takes centre stage as her friendship with the charming Colin Bridgerton evolves into something more. For those not yet acquainted, Colin, the charming younger brother of the Bridgerton family, is about to turn Penelope's world upside down. Mm, This is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridgerton Season 3, now playing only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart people who love dumb stuff. You're joined as always by Melbourne writers Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald. Zara McDonald, hello. Hello, Michelle Andrews. <laughs> Coming up on today's show, what is surge capacity and why are people like Brené Brown talking so much about it? Plus, Kylie Jenner dresses Stormy in a $16,000 backpack. And then Chrissy Teigen and John Legend's very public, very harrowing loss. But first, Zara, how on earth was your week? Fuck. This this old chestnut again has got me good. Um, <laughs> how was my week? I went on picnics this week, which was lovely. I feel good. like everybody in Australia, now that summer's coming up and Melbournians can suddenly socialise a tinsy tiny bit, picnics were the <laughs> highlight of my week. I went on two. I had a lovely time. I I can't say I did much else with my week. I do, though, have a recommendation. I do recommend an episode of Desert Island Discs, one of my all-time favourite podcasts. Desert Mm -hmm. Island Discs, I think, will always be one of my staples where I float in and out of listening. I definitely Mm -hmm. kind of pick my episodes depending on the guest, but it's like definitely one of my favourite things to exist on the internet. They interviewed the very (laughs) lovely Bernadine Evaristo recently, Mish. I don't know if you've listened to this app. No, I haven't. What kind of questions were they asking her? Bernadine is a lot of fun to interview. I say that after interviewing her for all of 10 minutes for our book club. How how was that drop so quickly? (laughs) Sorry. Your interview and Desert Island Discs (laughs) on the same page. Are they? I would just like to be considered in like the conversation. When Desert Island Discs comes up, I wouldn't hate my name being mentioned. Well, for those who aren't aware who Bernadine Evaristo is, she is, of course, the Booker Prize winning author of Girl, Woman, Other. Girl, Woman, Other was our very first pick for Shameless Book Club. And yes, Michelle Andrews did interview her for a whole 10 minutes for that episode. So suddenly this has become not a recommendation of Desert Island Discs, but your interview with Bernadine. Just a plug for me. Annabelle, just put some like applause behind this entire segment, if you like, just a bit of a pat on the back to me. What what did you like about it, though? Like, why should I listen to this episode? You know what I loved? I think there was a really beautiful discussion around actually winning the Booker Prize because it is kind of the biggest prize you can possibly win as an author and as a writer. And I think when we hear from high profile people about awards, there's this sense that they don't matter or people act like Mm. they don't care if they win them or that they're not nervous. But Bernadine was really transparent and very candid about how nervous she was going into the ceremony for the Booker Prize because she wanted it so badly. And I just really don't think you hear that enough. It's not like when people are going up for a Logie that they come out and say, I'm desperate (laughs) to win this. 
Do you know what I mean? Like I, I drank heaps beforehand because <laughs> I was desperate to win, but maybe that's the difference between the Logies and the Booker Prize. I don't know. I was about to say, I think that says more about how little fucks we give about the Logies <laughs> than like the Booker Prize Awards. I love that though. I think that's so refreshing because so often I think we expect people to downplay their achievements, particularly in Australia. I think it's a very Australian thing to kind of roll your eyes at anything that you achieve. And if you take it seriously, then by default, you take yourself too seriously. And I think that's a British influence on us as well. I think it's not very American at all, but it is very British and Australian. So I find that really refreshing that Bernadine Evaristo is so candid about really giving a fuck. Well, I find it interesting, right? This is a bit of a niche tangent example, but when like an AFL player (laughs) wins the Brownlow medal, which is for those who don't follow AFL, like the best player in the competition that year, and they always say, it's not about the individual accolades, it's about the team. But you're sitting there being like, fuck that. Like it absolutely is about the individual accolades and anyone would take a Brownlow if it was given to them. I would would love to poll (laughs) the AFL players anonymously and say, would you rather a grand final or a Brownlow medal? Ooh. Wouldn't that be interesting? Yeah, yeah, would you rather it would the be. individual still... accolade or the team one? <sighs> I still think the majority of people would say grand final. This is such a tangent. I don't I know, know. <laughs> why I'm going on it. But like, at least for the grand final, you all get to enjoy it I know, together. you're so right. This was a really bad example. With a brown low, probably people like kind of sneering at you, being like, fuck that guy with the brown low medal. Actually, yeah, and it's more ce- it's more fun to celebrate with friends. Ignore this tangent anyway. <laughs> Desert Island is with Bernadine Everisto, a great listen. How was your week? It'll be very telling if Annabelle leaves that bit in or if she likes <laughs> a bit of a chop. <laughs> My week. Look, nothing to report, didn't do anything, but I do have a question for you that's kind of been like It's popped up in my brain a couple of times. The listeners keep DMing me about it and having a bit of a joke. And I just want to ask you about it for the first time ever since our book came out. Why the fuck in Target and Kmart and Big W and on Booktopia is our book just credited to your name? You're not first (laughs) alphabetically. You didn't write more words than me. I would just love to have this conversation with you. I didn't know that it was in Target and Kmart. I see it on Booktopia and love it because it just says the space between written by Zara McDonald. It actually makes no sense because I would say (laughs) historically you would be the one that would be there anyway. Like it's never me who gets this stuff happen to them. And I'm Z and I'm M. Like both of my letters. I trump you in both. Yeah. I, alphabetically, I have you fucking beaten to a pulp. Like, you are not beating me in any sense of the word. I wonder if it's because the people plugging this information into the machines or whatever it is knows that as a Z, this shit never happens to me. When you're a Z, and people who are Zs would know what I'm talking about, this shit never happens to you because you fall off fucking everything because you're the last in the alphabet. So I am just going to sit in this glory for a tiny <laughs> bit and say that The Space well, Between was written by Zara McDonald. Well, see, this is the uncomfortable thing, right? I can't bring this up with anyone. It's not like I can go to Penguin and be like, Penguin, what the fuck? Where's my name on all the like receipts and all the little tags selling our book? Because I take myself too seriously. So I'm just going to put it out on this podcast and hopefully someone comes back to me with an answer because we wrote the same amount of words and I'm alphabetically first and I shouldn't care about it. But a little teeny part of me just wants Zara and Michelle. It doesn't need to be Zara McDonald. McDonald gives me room for Michelle. Can so be Zara true. and Michelle. It is so funny, these kind of petty things that you don't want to raise because it does look like you take yourself too seriously, but also you like everyone would raise it like it is such a classic like I'm trying to think of other examples where you don't want to raise really stupid things but it's been on your mind oh anyway I do have a recommendation for the week I actually finished a book cover to cover in the space of three days this book is written by our former boss Zara Holly Wainwright yeah it is called I give my marriage a year it is a really sugary fun light 
easy read about the decay and breakdown of a marriage and kind of what the two characters do to try and save it over the space of 12 months. And I really enjoyed it. It was a really easy read. You started on the same day as me. Have you finished it yet? Yeah, I finished it. I really enjoyed it. So I do back that recommendation. I did struggle, not with the um, writing or the plot at all, but seeing and this might sound like the most young, immature comment, but seeing the decay of a marriage kind of really spoke to me about how hard relationships are as you get older. And I kind of got a little Mm. bit terrified about how I was going to keep my relationships alive. I think for those who haven't read the book, it is, as Mish said, it's about, you know, the nuance of staying with someone over the course of 20 years and the shit that you carry through that time. And I was reading this being like, this is kind of depressing. Yeah. A caveat for those who want to go out and buy this book. It did make me question whether or not I want children. And that has never happened to me in my life ever. It yeah. made me really question if I wanted children too because I I know that we have a lot of listeners who actually do have kids as well who are listening to this being like having kids is one of those things where it's the hardest thing you'll ever do but the best thing you'll ever do and that's the thing mm. you hear time and time and time again. But as a young person reading the experience of people that have kids, the stuff that sticks out to you is the stuff that appears to strip you of your identity as we yeah. know it. And that's a really hard thing to grapple with looking forward. Yeah, and the feeling of not having time with your partner where it's just the two of you. That's fucking terrifying to me that you have like tyrants running around that you have to take to ballet classes and soccer all the time and you never ever see your partner. I don't know, maybe this is an existential crisis that I probably need to discuss with Mitch, not 100,000 podcast listeners. (laughs) No, but I did did find myself putting the book down a couple of times, turning to Ollie being like, please let us never turn up like this. Like, yes. I can't imagine how young we must sound though to some of our listeners listening to this so please call the hotline if you've read this book or if you have just general thoughts about what we're talking about about this sentiment of growing old and being with the same person and having children because I do think it's something that we've been worrying about these last few days after reading this book imagine if all these parents call the hotline and like don't fucking do it just save yourselves do not have kids imagine if our mums did (laughs) anyway let's get to the hotline the first message we have today Zara is from listener Gemma Good morning, Mitch and Zara. My name's Gemma. I'm sure I'm probably one of about 500 people who've left you a voicemail this week to tell you that please don't write off Shit's Creek just because someone's told you it takes three seasons to get into it. It does take a couple of episodes, and by the end of the first season, you're like, oh, yeah, it's pretty good. But the reason it's worth sticking out is because it actually just gets even better. Like, it's, it's literally, it is worth your time. If you watch it and you come back, and you don't like it, I'm sure the rest of us listeners who told you to watch us will eat our words because there is no way that you won't love it. You will come back and you'll tell us in another episode how much you loved it and how much you want to redact your earlier statements. Gemma, I have good news for you. Yeah, Michelle does. took your and the advice from maybe 1,500 of our most passionate listeners on board last week. And I have officially begun Shit's Creek. I am five episodes in. And let me tell you, It's pretty good. Like, I'm enjoying it. I'm not sad that I've spent five hours or whatever it's been of my time watching it. Aren't they only 20-minute episodes? Yeah, true. So what? Oh, that's maybe not a good indictment on the Good maths. (laughs) I haven't truly like an hour or two. (laughs) I'm not regretting it. I'm enjoying it and I can't wait to see what happens. You know how the first episode of every drama is a little bit clunky? Like the script writing isn't as seamless and believable and real as it could be. I feel like it was maybe suffering with a bit of that in episode one, but 
episodes like two to five have been quite good. I have a question for the listeners. I would also like them to, you know, call the hotline or get in touch with us about this because one of my best friends, Emily, tried to get on the bandwagon with Schitt's Creek and she has been asking people who loved Schitt's Creek, did you love Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Because she doesn't really like the humour in Brooklyn Nine-Nine and nor do I. And so through that comparison, she has decided that through a couple of episodes, she doesn't think this is for her because it's not her sense of humour. I want to know, can you like Schitt's Creek and Parks and Rec? Are those kinds of sense of humour similar? Because that's my measurement. And if they are, then I'll watch it. But if it's more of a Brooklyn Nine-Nine vibe, not my thing. I agree. Brooklyn Nine-Nine sucks. And now you've freaked me out because my little brother's favourite show in the world is Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Schitt's Creek. So I think you're onto something. Well, it's not me. It's Emily. (laughs) (laughs) I always feel terrified taking people's ideas and sharing them on this podcast like Ollie's brother's bloody Floridora and then suddenly I'm credited for it. It is an interesting line of thought making that comparison. So please let us know, Mish. We have a voicemail and actually 500 others about David Attenborough this week, but we chose to play this one. Hey, Mission Zara, it's Arnwin from Brisbane. I am a huge Sir David Attenborough fan. I was born and raised on the documentaries, and I get the impression from the last few interviews that he's done, especially the one he did last year with Tom Tilly from Hack, that he's just over people, and he fights quite sincerely against the sort of celebrity persona we've all put on him. Um, Speaking of Beyonce-like moves, I was in Amsterdam last year and happened to just walk past him. And I like to think I'm pretty good and hold my cool around famous people in the wild. I've certainly seen my fair share. But when I saw David Attenborough, I completely lost my shit and went full groupie mode, asked for a photo. And without even slowing down, he looked at me and said, thank you, I'd rather not. And just kept on walking. So pretty heartbreaking, but easily the most sweetest sounding rejection I've ever received. I can't believe how much I copped from this. To be honest, a lot of people also agree with me. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, I made what is now apparently a very bold claim that a lot of people are on a David Attenborough bandwagon without watching many of the documentaries. A lot of people agreed. A lot of people are. <laughs> that is such also politician angry. spin. That is such politician spin. Okay, I'm not lying. 80% didn't. We polled the audience. 80% was no, on Team David. You sold me up the fucking garden path. You took a screenshot <laughs> of a message that completely missed my point. I'm sorry to whatever listener <laughs> reached out. But someone DM'd us being like, that's not true. I've watched David Attenborough for my whole life. I'm like, you're not the kind of person that I'm talking about then if you've watched David Attenborough for your whole life. I'm talking about the people who pretend to like David Attenborough, but have barely watched a doco, which is a far I more feel salient like point. We have a whole lot of Donald Trump spin going on on your side here <laughs> because I also loved, I love that out of all the hotline messages we got about this David Attenborough segment, a lot of them were borderline, not nasty, but hypercritical of you and your comments last week. I just love that you went for Arnwin, who was like just having a laugh, funny anecdote, not any of the ones that were really critical of us, not acknowledging that, yes. David Attenborough has been seminal for the cause of climate change and we are very glad that he has done that. And of course, people share that video because they because they really do care about the cause of climate change as well. So probably an oversight on our behalf to not broach that subject or I even said, mention the words climate change. You, you clearly didn't offer anything in this segment because I offered quite a lot. I said it's not a bad bandwagon to be on, but if there's any bandwagon that's going to garner people jumping on a bandwagon... <laughs> I'm happy it's David Attenborough. 
I just wanted us to be acknowledging that it was a bandwagon. But yes, isn't it great that people want to talk about climate change? The reason that I put Arnwin in there is because nobody else had a fucking encounter with Mr. David Attenborough. Nobody else. I really, really love that you just said no as well. Like, can I get a selfie with you? Can I get a signature? No. I mean, imagine how often he'd be annoyed by it, like any celebrity. Sometimes you just want to go to the supermarket and walk out and not take a selfie. And also, I feel like humans get to the age of about 70 and then just stop people pleasing. So I can't <laughs> wait to get to that state as a chronic people pleaser who would say yes to every person who asked anything of me. Someone could ask to walk over my bare body on the road and I'd be like, go for it. I can't wait to get to the age of 70 where I just start telling people no. You know you can do that now at 26. You're allowed to. I can't. I need something in my brain to change where I just stop giving such a fuck. Yeah, I know. God, can't wait. How do we get here? I don't know. (laughs) But let's get into our first main segment today, Mish, because what we did this week is we found ourselves having a million conversations back and forth between each other about how we have been struggling in the last couple of weeks. I think Mm. one thing I've been conscious not to do on the podcast is to always talk about the scenario that Melbourne finds itself in and how long we've been in lockdown because I just don't think it's necessarily helpful and can sometimes be a little bit of draining when you always mention it. But we found ourselves having conversations quite candidly with each other saying, like, we are really struggling. Like, we have no energy. We can't get out of bed. We don't want to leave the house. And I don't think that any of this is particularly hyperbolic. This is genuinely how we've been feeling, that we find mm. it hard putting energy together to do a recording. Everything feels like a blur And so you decided to punch some of these feelings out in an Instagram post that we posted on Instagram. Yeah, and I think this post only came this week because I think it actually took us moving from winter to spring for me to realise what was actually going on in my head and your head and I think our boyfriend's heads and everyone we really know as well in that in winter I'd penciled down this feeling to it's grey, it's cold, no wonder I don't want to get out of bed. But then as the sun started coming out and spring weather really hit Melbourne and it's been beautiful here, I realized that we could have like a 28 degree day where it's beautiful sunshine and I'm still stuck in bed until 8.45 when I start work at nine and I just physically can't get up because I can't start the day. And we launched the book and you would think that someone who's just launched a book and has all these exciting opportunities and interviews that day and stuff going on, I'd be able to get out of bed and yet you and I still couldn't. And I think that's when you and I really started thinking something's going on here. And to be honest, this goes so much deeper than just not being able to get out of bed for me as well. It is like a lack of motivation to do anything. Like I've really struggled to leave the house to do grocery shopping. I have struggled to do life admin, like going to the post office, doing really simple tasks, which feels so ironic because this is a time in my life when I have nothing to do and yet I feel more stuck and more inert than ever. So we decided to write a post about this and share it on Instagram on Wednesday night because we felt like if we were both feeling this way, a lot of our listeners would be too. The post, for anyone who hasn't seen it, reads, is anyone else feeling energetically depleted? It's like 2020 robbed us of our opportunities to travel and party and explore, but also of our capacity for social interaction. We have nothing to do, but also no desire to respond to texts, open emails, go for catch-up walks, or organize video calls anymore. We are just stuck stuck in a cycle of monotonous gray hued waiting and I've got to say I was quite confident we shared that post it is now our most liked post ever has more than 16,000 likes and hundreds and hundreds of comments and lots of shares as well and seeing that really sung out to me because it told me we're not alone yeah and I found myself in this really strange space last week in particular where I kept saying to my family and to my partner like I really miss 
hanging out with my friends at the moment and I miss hanging out with my family and being with them. And yet when opportunities arise where I can go for a walk with a friend within my radius or go for a walk with a family member in my radius, I really want to cancel because I'm tired and I can't be bothered and it doesn't make any sense at all. And I kind of can't marry these two really opposing forces in my mind. And I'm finding it hard to go Mm. to the supermarket or even, you know, leave my house or text friends as, as you wrote in that post. And as you said, it was really, really comforting because a lot of people message us saying, if you're feeling like this, you need to listen to an episode of Brené Brown's podcast where she touched on this concept called surge capacity, which I hadn't heard of before. No, neither. This really took me by surprise how many people said surge capacity and kind of pointed to this new concept on our post. And I've got to say, it's not a new concept, right? So surge capacity historically has been used to refer to a hospital's ability to deal with an influx of new patients and new people needing treatment. However, now surge capacity is also being used to discuss a mental state in that when we are facing changing goalposts and new hurdles and a series of really grey, bleary unknowns, that our brain, after a certain amount of time, really struggles to cope with that. And the amount of time that Brene Brown pointed to and that scientist Tara Hale pointed to in a really great piece that she wrote for Medium is about six months. Yeah, it's called the six-month wall. And Tara Hale, in this piece that she wrote for Medium, which was really, really brilliant that we'll put in our show notes, and I found this incredibly validating to read, and she she did write it in August, but I just hadn't seen it at the time. She quoted mm. a woman called Anne Maston, who is a psychologist and professor of child development, who defined surge capacity as a collection of adaptive systems, mental and physical, that humans draw on for short-term survival in acutely stressful situations such as natural disasters. And so it's this idea that for a certain amount of time, so many of us have been running on adrenaline and then suddenly you get to a point where there's no more adrenaline to run on and you crash and burn. And it's been really interesting kind of experiencing this sense of burnout when it's not related to work. I think every time we want to have a conversation about burnout, it is career related. And yet when I found myself in bed, unable to get out, I kept thinking like, this is absolutely what burnout feels like. And it's got nothing Mm. to do with my job. I found the opening of Tara Hale's story really, really interesting. And I related to it a lot. She wrote, it was the end of the world as we knew it. And I felt fine. That's almost exactly what I told my psychiatrist at my March 16 appointment, a few days after our children's school district extended spring break because of the coronavirus. I said the same at my April 27 appointment, several weeks after our state's stay at home order. And she spoke about how in those first few weeks, she actually genuinely did feel fine because Mm. she felt like she did thrive in high stress emergency situations. And I have felt kind of the same that at the start, I was like, I can thrive on this. There's a lot of adrenaline going on. You can kind of push your way through this because it's so unusual and you're trying to soak it all in. And then eventually you can't survive off that anymore. You can't live like that Mm. anymore. And you definitely can't thrive like that. I have loved one quote actually from Dr. Pauline Boss, who has a PhD in social science and family therapy. So Pauline Boss said, Our culture is very solution-oriented, which is a good way of thinking for many things. It's partly responsible for getting a man on the moon and a rover on Mars and all the things we've done in this country, as in America, that are wonderful. But it's also a very destructive way of thinking when you're faced with a problem that has no solution. Mm. And I think in my life, when I look around the people that I love, you know how people talk about type A and type B? 
as certainly as far as I can see, the type A people in my life are really struggling right now. You and I, I would say, are both type A, like quite solution oriented, quite driven in a work sense. And then I have friends who are not that and who are far more relaxed and far more chill. And often I wish I was one of them. And I think type A people are really struggling right now because we live our lives constantly looking for control. I love having control over situations. I love being able to put things into my life that kind of safeguard me from anxiety or maximize my work output or make me get the best sleep, whatever it might be. But living in a situation where I have no idea when it's going to end, I have no idea if this is going to be a 2020 issue or 2021 to 2025 thing. That is really hard for me to cope with as a type A person. And someone on the post that we put on Instagram this week wrote that it's very similar to the feeling that many rural Australians have experienced of waiting for rain. I feel like that is such a beautiful, poetic, poignant example of what we're going through right now. We are waiting for rain and there is no indication of when that rain will come. Brene Brown, when she spoke about this in her podcast episode, touched on the fact that it felt like some days when she wakes up, it's like both of her feet each weigh 40 pounds. And I thought, I mean, fuck, this is why Brene Brown's so popular because she has, if we're speaking about poetic, (laughs) like she has the most poetic way of speaking about thoughts and feelings. And I thought that's exactly how it feels. I feel heavy. And she also Mm. said having been someone who's lived through quite a few hurricane seasons, that it's like the wind is breaking the windows and we're in cleanup at the same time, that there's all Mm -hmm. these things going on at the same time and your mind is in overdrive. And I find it quite interesting that I don't know, and I'd love to know if I'm just alone in this, but I find it really, really hard to reconcile that my body responds to something that I'm not convinced is affecting me. And I mean, I've spoken on the podcast before a little bit and written in our newsletter about how sort of the last year I've kept getting quite chronically sick. And some people have just turned around being like, what if it's stress? And I've turned around being like, but I don't feel stressed. Like I don't feel stressed. So why would my body be reacting to something that I can't make sense of? And it kind of reminds me of how we're responding to this, that I find it incredibly hard to reconcile that this sense of burnout and this sense of heaviness is a response to something I keep promising myself that I'm not affected by. Are you similar to that, Mm. that you can't quite marry these two things being related, but they must be? I mean, I think so. I realized this week that I'm not eating a lot. Like I I just had this dawning realization that I am not in a healthy weight range anymore. And I was kind of thinking about it being like, how has this happened where I've stopped eating and I don't really feel hungry and it's not intentional. Like I want that to be really clear. I'm not intentionally trying to lose weight. I'm not intentionally trying to limit my food intake, but I think it's stress. I think that I'm perpetually stressed and I'm perpetually feeling down. And typically across my life when I've felt those things, like when my parents separated when I was 21, that has been the flow on impact that my my appetite goes. And I realized literally last night when I weighed myself that I need to start eating more and I need to start putting effort into this because subconsciously it must be having a huge impact on my psyche. And I don't think I've given it enough weight yet. And I need to start giving it more weight because I keep going, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Everything's going great. And I'm pushing it down and down and down. And I think it's actually helpful to kind of expose these things and shine a light on them so that we do take it more seriously. Because I think a year like this can have such detrimental impact not just on our mental health, but our physical health too. I want to speak to you about a thread of comments on our post that kind of explored the fact that, oh, well, we're very privileged to only be experiencing these feelings now. And I understand, particularly when members of the disability community are discussing this, that these kind of feelings are felt by 
people in minorities and people on the fringes basically all day, every day, pandemic or no pandemic. And I want to make that really clear that it is a privilege that we are only feeling some of these things right now. And we're lucky, like we're lucky that we're only just experiencing this. We're also lucky that a whole bunch of people are experiencing it at the same time because it means we have life rafts in each other. And I can't imagine how lonely and isolating it would feel to believe that you're going through this on your own and you're going through this while the rest of the world is thriving. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that really hit me hard is reading the comments from people with chronic illness, people who are fighting intergenerational trauma, that this is what they live with every single day. And I desperately hope that this opens our mind a little bit to what burnout looks like and feels like to people who are living with it every day, the disabled community, the activists fighting racism. Like, I really hope that if one good thing comes out of this, it is that we understand what burnout looks like when it's not tied to work Mm. and it's not tied to career, but it is tied to stress and trauma. But putting that to one side, Mish, because I think that is a really important takeaway for so many going Mm. through this, and it is something that I'm going to hold very dear to me in the ensuing months and years. There was another line of thought where people said, but because this is maybe the first time you're going through this, you kind of have no right to feel the way that you're feeling because it's not the worst thing in the world. And I know that we've definitely had conversations on this podcast about how, well, what do we do when something you're going through is not the worst thing in the world, but is still something? And then I read a quote from Zadie Smith, actually. Zadie Smith wrote a collection of essays very quickly about the period of time we're finding ourselves in. And I actually stumbled on it because I follow the British writer Otega Uwagba on Instagram. And this line from Zadie Smith in this essay also kind of felt like a slap across the face because I'd never considered it. And she wrote, suffering is not relative, it is absolute. Suffering has an absolute relation to the suffering individual. It cannot be easily medicated by a third term like privilege. If it could, the CEO's daughter would never starve herself, nor the movie idol ever put a bullet in his own brain. Early on in the crisis, I read a news story concerning a young woman of only 17 who had killed herself three weeks into lockdown because she couldn't go out and see her friends. She was not a nurse with an inadequate PPE and a long commute arriving at a ward of terrified people, bracing herself for a long day of death. But her suffering, like all suffering, was an absolute in her own mind and applied itself to her body and her mind as if uniquely shaped for her and she could not overcome it and so she died. I was like quite taken aback by this line of thought because I don't know if I agree with it. I mean, it's impossible to say that you don't agree with it because if you don't agree Mm. with it, then what are you saying about that young girl who wanted to take her own life? I think privilege is a really important, crucial thing to acknowledge in almost any single conversation that we're having, but this was just completely left field for me. Yeah, I think privilege and suffering are two different things. And I think when you hear it put in such powerful terms like that, everyone suffers. Everyone suffers in different ways. And of course, people born into privilege suffer less, particularly in like the workplace and things like that. But if we're going to say that only the people who are worst off in the world can talk about their suffering, then it's kind of a game that no one can win. Like it's a game that tells us that everyone's stories are invalid unless you are the single person in the world who has the worst set of circumstances. I think the most important thing for people to do is when we talk about what we're going through and we talk about the struggles we face is to also point to the privileges that have aided us along the way, right? It's like being cognizant of both things. But I think there should be room for everyone suffering right now. Like there should be room for everyone's emotions and how everyone is dealing with it. And I don't think it's helpful to ever discount how someone is feeling about a set of circumstances that I wouldn't wish on anyone. No, I think it's that suffering and self-awareness should go hand in hand. That if you are suffering, that you should be self-aware enough to know 
that your suffering is not the only type of suffering. It is not the worst type of suffering, but that kind of suffering still matters. And I think if there's one thing that reading so much about this this week has taught me is that compassion is at the forefront. Like we need to have Mm. compassion for people. And what I hope desperately we all carry from this experience is compassion for people who are burnt out 24-7 because they are fighting for causes we will never understand. And let us say as well, if you are struggling right now, that is absolutely valid. And we are thinking of every single one of you and sending you all of our love, no matter what your circumstances. Coming up after the break, Stormy goes to school in a backpack that costs more than our cars and then (laughs) the power that comes from women sharing their stories while they are mired in deep pain. But first, a word from today's sponsor. And now it is time for the quick and dirty. As always, we bring you the top five stories from the rough and tumble of the celebrity and pop culture news cycle. Michelle Elizabeth Andrews, what have you got for me? My first story, Kylie Jenner's daughter Stormy goes to school with a $16,000 backpack. That is from (laughs) news.com.au. What the fuck? For those who missed it, Stormy Webster stepped out for her first day of school sporting a $16,000 baby pink. I'm going to try and pronounce this right. Toralyn Clements Kelly Ado Hermes backpack. <laughs> I mean, it's actually kind. You tell you what's embarrassing when you actually try to pronounce like a high-end designer's name and realize you've never said it out loud because you clearly don't fucking shop there and you don't know what you're saying. <laughs> Happens a lot, I reckon. People never talk about it. You know the more embarrassing thing? I didn't even realize that was a designer's name. Oh, I is actually that a don't designer's even... name. Fuck knows. You know what? We don't know. But Stormy Webster is wearing the backpack. How old is Stormy? How is she going to school? I don't know. Maybe it's like a preschool thing. I feel like this is very American because there's no way she's five or six. I'm, go- I'm doing a live Google for Yeah, so all. am I. Stormy she's, Webster. Um, two she's years two old. years old. <laughs> what do you mean school what are they talking about school this is what everyone's saying though her first day of school this must be an american preschooler thing it must be kinder it has to be i mean two-year-old kinder is it creche i reckon she's just getting babysat i don't even think (laughs) is it child care it's literally child care i have no idea what i do know is that this outfit which was also paired for those playing along with a pint-sized pair of jordan retro three sneakers a black t-shirt dress and diamond earrings did kind of spark a bit of backlash. Real Housewives of New York star Bethany Frankel called the photo the most transparent humble brag I've seen yet. It's everything wrong with everything. When the media picked that up and ran that story, she then doubled down and tweeted, I commented on Us Weekly on a backpack on Kylie Jenner's daughter. I'm no stranger to Hermes bags and have a daughter and luxury cars, but flaunting under the guise of a back-to-school post during a pandemic and the greatest unemployment crisis in our lifetime is a choice. Now, I find it interesting (laughs) that in making a point about how Kylie Jenner shouldn't flaunt her wealth, Bethany Frankel felt the need to point out to us that she's no stranger to Hermes or luxury cars and that she herself also has a lot of money. I'm just a bit confused also that in listing a whole heap of luxury items and things that she owns, she also said she has a daughter. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what What has that got to do with anything? That is very funny that she kind of did want to distance herself from luxury, but not too much because, yes, I've got lots of money too. <laughs> you know what? I don't really give a fuck that Kylie Jenner dressed stormy like this. Like, I've got much bigger fish to fry, to be totally honest with you. Yeah, and it's also like, do we really think this was an instance of her flaunting her wealth? I think just every corner of her life is dripping in luxury. Like, this is a woman who has, like, 16 luxury cars. She has every Hermes bag under the sun. I think she's literally just gone into Stormy's 
Stormy's wardrobe and just dressed her in whatever she has there. The thing is, the only thing Stormy has are things from Hermes and like, I don't know, Louis Vuitton. It's not like she's pulling out a Target dress or something. A hundred percent I agree with you. She'd have no sense of money. No, no hate to <laughs> Kylie Jenner, but she'd have no fucking perspective on money. This would just be the normal. There's no flaunting involved. This is just the everyday look. <laughs> My second story, drugs, sex, domestic violence. NRL's dark cover up for Rabbitohs Sam Burgess. That is from the Australian. Mish, I think this was one of the most oh, tough stories I read this week. And when I say tough, I think it actually gave me goosebumps. For those who missed it, the Australian undertook a four-month investigation into the South Sydney Rabbitohs and in particular their former star player Sam Burgess, where they alleged Sam Burgess was taking drugs which were, you know, hidden, deliberately hidden and covered up by the club. They also alleged that he went on a pretty insane bender in 2018 where the father Mm. of Sam's estranged wife, Phoebe Burgess, alleges he witnessed domestic violence. Yeah, obviously with this one, guys, it's incredibly sensitive legally and we need to tread carefully. I would encourage people to go read the Australian article itself. I think it's actually worth paying for a subscription if you can afford it because I did just to read this story and I think it was a really thorough investigation. So basically they uncovered pharmaceutical records, sworn statements to New South Wales police, statutory declarations, witness accounts, call logs, emails, text messages, bank records, WhatsApp exchanges, Uber receipts, all detailing alleged episodes of everything that Zara just touched on. So really thorough investigation work by the journalists at The Australian. So go check it out if you can afford to pay for a subscription. It is also important to note here as well that Sam Burgess does deny all the allegations put forward. So they are just allegations at this point. My third story for today's Quick and Dirty, Gwyneth Paltrow just posed completely naked for the goopiest reason. That is from Refinery29. Now, why did you put this in? You really like this story. I I don't mind this story. I just found the commentary (laughs) kind of interesting. So she wrote for her birthday in nothing but my birthday suit today. Thank you all so much for the birthday wishes. She was quite naked. And when I say quite naked, I mean she was (laughs) naked. Like 100% naked. And thank you to Goop's insanely amazing brand new body butter for making me think I can still get my kit off. What I find interesting, Michelle, and I don't know if I'm really off track here, but I don't really have an issue with that image. Like unless people can point out what's problematic with it, and I'm sure people can point out what's problematic with this photo because we could probably point out what's problematic in almost everything in the world. I don't really care. But there was an op-ed in the Daily Mail (laughs) written by Duncan Lay who said that this wasn't empowering It was just an excuse to get people onto her website to purchase some of her ridiculous products. And I'm like, like, yes, Duncan. Of course, Duncan. (laughs) She's not saying that she's taken her clothes off and she feels empowering. She's literally saying in the caption, this is basically an ad. Also, like women are allowed to take their clothes off without it being some political message. Like you can just take your clothes off if that's what you want to do. It's not like every single thing women have to do in their lives has to be empowering for other women. She wants to take her clothes off, fucking do it. What I want to know is how good does a body butter have to be to make you want to pose naked in front of a camera? Like, what can a body butter actually do to make you feel better naked? Well, nothing. She's just trying to sell the (laughs) fucking body butter and look at us. Here we are, again, talking about Goop's fucking body butter. (laughs) Like, she's doing well because she posed naked. I just find it interesting that straight away we see a photo of a naked woman and make the assumption that she's doing it because she thinks it's empowering. Like, we've literally put Mm. words in her mouth and then are trying to criticise her for words she never said. I just find that really odd commentary, so that's why I wanted to put it in. I agree with you, my four. Fourth story, introducing your pop culture Australian social star of the year nominees. That is from E! News Australia. This is quite a new awards category from E! Since last year, they have announced the Australian Influencer of the Year. If you missed it, last year, 
Jade Tunkderuk, who is also known as Jade Tunchi online, one out of a lineup of Elle Ferguson, Kate Wosley, Lisa Danielle Smith, Nakia Joy, and Rosalia Russian. Now, Zara, they have just announced the new lineup or the new shortlist, whatever you want to call it, for 2020. Yeah, super interesting as well, Mish, because they have gone with a slightly different lineup this year. Last year's lineup was mostly white. I think this year we've got Brooke Blurton, Flex Mami, Helen Chick, Lana Wilkinson, Martha Kay, and DJ Tiger Lily. A pretty random collection of influencers, but all influencers who seem to have influence over their their audience. Absolutely. I was surprised by a couple. Lana Wilkinson, to me, strikes me more as an entrepreneur than a social media influencer. So I was surprised to see her inclusion. Not I love Lana, like as everyone would have heard on our In Conversation episode with Lana Wilkinson. We think she's incredible. But I was interested to see her in this lineup. DJ Tiger Lily, again, strikes me more as an entertainer and a performer than a social influencer. I will say I am rooting for either Brooke Blurden or Flex Mommy to take this home because they are two of my absolute favorite people to follow online. Who are you rooting for? Yeah, I agree. I also think it speaks volumes that this year the people on this list or quite a few people on this list are quite political because I think that speaks so much to how the people we follow in Instagram has changed quite markedly in 2020 and we want to follow people who have substance and something to say so I think this is following the trend pretty well. I'm actually a little bit sad that Kate Worsley wasn't nominated again this year. You would think that if someone was nominated in 2019 there would be some pullover to the next year just because they lost last year. Kate Worsley has been incredible this year I'd say she's better to follow now than she ever has been and that's a testament to her because we absolutely adore her as well but it'll be very interesting to see what comes of this and who actually wins my fifth and final story for today's quick and dirty here's the taylor swift song that describes your love life based on your zodiac sign that is from elite daily yes that is the dumbest fucking fucking headline i've ever put in the quick and dirty but i'd be lying to myself to you zara and to all our listeners if i didn't admit that of course of course i clicked on this immediately despite the fact that i really don't give much of a fuck about it astrology i would never have clicked on this and i also still don't care so rush me through quick (gasps) what do you mean you don't care so basically (laughs) what this elite daily journalist did who has an interest in astrology went through every star sign had the like prominent qualities of that star sign and then matched them up to taylor swift songs and i don't think you're gonna like the song that you got you're a cancer aren't you yeah i'm a cancer what did i get if this was a movie, I don't even know that song. <laughs> I've never even heard of it. That's not this even is a song. Thing. I didn't think that either. I had to go and listen to it. I recognized the song, but only just faintly. And I'm like a diehard Taylor Swift fan. This wasn't even like a single. It wasn't even released on a legit album. This was that a sucks. bonus track on Speak Now in 2011. I, I kind of feel like being a cancer is a bit nothingy. Like, you know, the star signs, <laughs> some star signs have far greater presence than others. Like, I feel like Leo. Leo's, Tauruses. Virgo. Virgo. Everyone always talks about fucking Virgo. Even Geminis. Cancers don't make any memes. They don't make any kind of pop culture (laughs) speak. I don't really know what the core characteristics of a cancer is, so I feel like this just makes sense. I do want to say, though, sad news for any Leos who are listening. Your Taylor Swift song is apparently me. No, that's so bang on. The worst Taylor Swift song ever released. And what do you mean that is so bang on? Do you even know the characteristics of a Leo? Because I don't. Yeah, my best friend and my boyfriend are both Leos and they are the biggest Leos in the world. They are me, me, me people, which is why the song is me. They are both lovely, but they are just big. <laughs> a few other highlights for those listening. I won't give you everything. You can go look at the article if you want to see what your star sign is. But I do like that Scorpio's got Blank Space. I feel like Blank Space is one of her best songs ever. So congratulations to you guys. Pisces, which I am, a love story, which is obviously a classic for all the hopeless romantics out there, of which I am 
very, very hopeless and romantic. Bit lame, but onwards. <laughs> That's all for today's Quick and Dirty. <laughs> I'm glad we're ending on that note. <laughs> that was a grim note to end on. I know. Three, two, one. Just trigger warning before we jump into this next segment, guys. This next chat will detail pregnancy loss and bereavement and may be triggering for some listeners. We're often invited into the private lives of Chrissy Teigen and John Legend, the cookbook writing, modelling, singing and acting Hollywood duo who have created some of the last few years' most memorable pop culture moments. But on Thursday, we caught a glimpse not of their nightly rituals or favourite home-cooked meals, but of their rawest trauma, the loss of their pregnancy with their third child, a son they named Jack. After days of complications, which saw Tegan hospitalised, little Jack was born sleeping. We were told of this news via a series of black and white photographs posted to Tegan's Instagram and Twitter accounts, all taken in the hospital in the minutes after Tegan and Legend lost their baby son. Zara, how did you feel when you saw those photos? I felt like my heart was in my throat. I don't think you can see those photos and not feel so deeply moved that they chose to share them with us. And... My heart did hurt. Like it was, it's such an awful thing to see someone in that raw stage of grief, like that almost primal stage of grief. And I don't know, they say a picture paints a thousand words and those pictures were deeply, deeply moving. What about you? They were heart shattering. Yeah. I cried. And I think when you're let into someone's life like Chrissy Teigen's in the way that we have been, we know so much about her. She is so generous with her insights and her thoughts and her opinions on the world. We know her. We genuinely do know her. She might not know us, but we almost feel like we're friends with her. And I think seeing anyone go through this when you have that level of connection and attachment to someone, even if they are a celebrity, it affects you on a deeper level. And so I think a lot of people really struggled with this. Yeah. And then I think there's the second point too, which is this is an incredibly common experience for so many people. And I think that's why it's so moving because I don't think there are many people who saw these photos and haven't been touched in some way, shape or form by pregnancy loss. I mean, It's noted that 10 to 15% of women who know they are pregnant will experience a miscarriage and each year 2.6 million babies worldwide are stillborn. According to the Stillbirth Center of Research Excellence, as quoted by the ABC locally, in 2019, around six babies a day were stillborn in Australia, affecting almost 2,200 families. The risk of stillbirth is often doubled for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, some migrant and refugee communities, as well as women from disadvantaged groups. So this is... This is an incredibly widespread thing for families to suffer through and seeing these kinds of photos just hits home how no matter how common something is, it doesn't break your heart any less. Yeah, my my mum actually gave birth to my sister Jennifer who was born sleeping and Jennifer died before I was born. So if Jennifer had lived, I wouldn't be here because I was conceived relatively quickly after my mum lost Jennifer. But I think any families that have been through this know all too well the ripple and flow on effect that a stillbirth has on a family or a pregnancy loss has on a family. Like I never met my sister, obviously, but knowing how she shaped my parents and knowing the grief they went through for years afterwards and still go through to this day, I feel like Jennifer has had such a huge impact on all of our lives and she was born sleeping. And I think anyone who has had their lives touched by stillbirth knows how deeply those children are loved who were never earthside. And it's really timely because this conversation has come about in October, which is Mm. International Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. And I'm 
I'm glad that we're having this conversation because it's one we've never had on the podcast before, but I think it's one that many women struggle with in silence. I feel like this is one of the real lasting taboos of the female experience. Yeah, exactly. And Mina Harris tweeted during the week, and we put this on Instagram, didn't we, Mish? Women suffer through so much in silence. Those who choose to speak, even in their toughest moments, give power to all of us. Mina Harris is the founder of Phenomenal, and she is actually the the niece of Kamala Harris, who's running for vice president at the moment. I will say that if you are looking to add value to your newsfeed, follow Mina Harris. She's one of the best people that I've followed in the last few months. But I do find this perspective that she speaks to so important that the women that choose to share in the middle of grief offer the world so much. I don't think I could ever share in the middle of grief. I think there's something so raw about sharing pain when you're only kind of coming to terms with it yourself, but there's so much power. I think so many of us share with hindsight, which is also a really helpful and lovely thing to do. But when you aren't sharing in hindsight, when you are sharing in the present moment, you get that raw expression of confusion and devastation. And I wonder if there's anyone listening to this who is going through something similar to Chrissy Teigen or who knows someone who is going through something similar. I remember when we were working at Mamma Mia, Michelle, and our great friend Monique Bowley had just suffered a miscarriage. And in the immediate days after, she jumped in the studio and recorded the most raw piece of audio I've ever heard about just the pain she was experiencing. And I think we'll pop that into our show notes because I would recommend that episode to anyone who who's going through something and feels lonely. I also remember Laura Byrne talking about her own experience with miscarriage two months after miscarrying for the second time on her podcast, Life Uncut. So I'll put the link to that episode in our show notes because I think these kinds of stories, whether it be Chrissy Teigen or Laura Byrne or Manic Bolly, like Mina said, like they give power to all of us just by sharing their story. I agree. And let us say as well that if you have shared your story, but only once you've kind of worked through the aftermath of it, then that is in no way less valuable. But I do think there's value in both kinds of stories that it's important for us to see the mess and the chaos. And it's also important for us to see the healing narrative as well after that. I want to read out a passage that was in The Age this weekend by Isabel Oderberg. Isabel has gone through seven instances of pregnancy loss and she wrote this. When we do discuss miscarriage, we use beautiful, peaceful words like rainbow or angel, and we layer our farewells over photos of candles and sunshine. Chrissy's photo of herself hunched over a hospital bed, unclothed, her face twisted, clearly in physical and emotional agony, was intended to give people a real insight into the ugly side of the miscarriage experience. Because make no mistake, miscarriage and pregnancy loss is ugly and messy. This is what it looks like for so many people who experience it. Pain, sometimes physical, sometimes psychological, sometimes both. For many, it's a pain that permeates every fibre of their being. And I think this kind of discussion, this kind of real transformative honesty is so important because what I've been really shocked and disheartened by Zara is that in response to Chrissy Teigen coming out and sharing her story, yes, from the the vast majority of people, she's received love and compassion in return, but from a vocal, very vocal minority – She's been told that she should shut up and suffer or go through this in silence and that her words and her experience are not needed or valuable right now. I felt bulldozed by the people who find criticism in a story like this and it tires me and it saddens me and it makes me despise, fucking despise the internet. And it does make me wonder why we're so affronted 
by people who want to live their lives publicly? Like, why does that rub us the wrong way so much? Like, why do we always want to question their motives or assume they're only doing it for attention? There was a really disappointing segment on ITV's show Loose Women this week where one of the co-hosts, Carol McGiffin, said, I have to say that I did feel a little bit uncomfortable looking at them because I felt like I was an intruding in a way. I know that she's put them up there and I know that she's had a lot of followers and fans who care deeply for what's going on with her whole pregnancy up until yesterday, but I just feel like this was not something I should be witnessing. She did try to clarify that she did not want to judge Tegan or imply that she was wrong for sharing the post, but she did say, I just think it's such a private thing. I kind of question if there are some things you shouldn't have to share on social media. And her co-host, Jane Moore, also chipped in and said, I look and I think she's going through the most painful of experiences and I'm thinking, is she in the right headspace of that moment? to make that decision to put it out there. I really struggled reading this quotes, Mish, because it just screams of faux concern to me. Like, is this the Mm. most important conversation we can be having in the wake of a woman telling us that she's lost her baby and is mired in deep, deep pain? Like, is this the best use of our words? Because it doesn't feel like it's the best use of our words or our time or our energy or our feelings. I feel like women have so internalised and swallowed this belief that pregnancy loss is shameful. And I feel like those quotes are indicative of that. And we're not the first people to have this discussion, but even the rule that women should wait 12 weeks before they announce their pregnancy to the world. What, in case they miscarry, because you're most likely to miscarry in the first 12 weeks. Even that is so archaic and damaging. It teaches women that they should keep this secret until they know it's legit and they know it's going to be a a lasting thing. Because what, if they came out at eight weeks and they miscarried a week after, that would be what, something that the public doesn't want to know about? It should be something that they should deal with in private? Like we have so taken on this messaging that pregnancy loss is something the world doesn't want to know about. And what I found really interesting in Isabel Oderberg's piece was that she actually approached a publishing house to write about her miscarriages. And she is now writing a book, but she got turned away a couple of times. And the excuse given to her was that it's too confronting. Pregnancy loss is too confronting and people don't want to read about it. And on that, she had a really good quote that said, we have books about endometriosis, child sexual abuse, domestic abuse, rape, sexual harassment, horrific crimes, genocide, the list goes on. But a book that addresses the most common pregnancy complication, which affects more than 100,000 Australian families a year, that leaves one in three people who experience it suffering from PTSD, that can affect the way we parent subsequent children, that crosses a line of discomfort that just makes the whole thing unpalatable for some people, apparently. And I think we need to push back against that. This is something that affects so many people. There is nothing wrong with Chrissy Teigen wanting to come out and speak about every stage of what she's going through right now. In fact, I find it bloody admirable. Yeah, and I think if someone wants to share publicly, I don't know why we want to critique that. I don't know why we're so cynical about that. Barbara Ellen put it so wonderfully for The Guardian. She said, this was not a valid public response, but the electronic stoning of a woman already in terrible pain. I thought that was a really Mm. incredible line. She then said, "It it was instinctive, her way of processing. An overwhelming urge to share, reach out, make sense of it all perhaps even momentarily distance herself from the darkness she was engulfed in. I just get so tired of our cynicism all the time. And again, I can't believe I'm finishing the second segment today with a plea for compassion. But I think... 
God, that's what we need more of right now, particularly in a year like this one. Yeah, and if you're doubting what Chrissy Teigen's quotes can do for people, Dr. Jane Bellardi spoke to the ABC and said, I think celebrities such as Chrissy sharing their experience of miscarriage, especially in such a raw way and at such an emotionally painful time, is absolutely a form of support for other women who have had similar experiences. So keep that in mind if you want to be critical that doctors and experts say that this is helpful and this will bring the conversation to light and this will break down the taboo which is so important i think that is all we have time for today i think it absolutely is hey thank you so much for listening as always and thank you so much again to everybody who is posting pictures on their instagram of reading our book the space between please keep tagging us in those it makes our day more than you all know i think when you work on a project like this one for two years and it's, it's quite surreal to see it out in the world being taken to the beach or taken to the park. So keep doing that. Keep tagging us whenever you're reading it and wherever you're reading it because we may not be able to leave the house, but we want to see you leaving it <laughs> so we know we can do that soon too. We're living vicariously through you all. Guys, thank you so, so much for listening to this episode. If you want to keep up to date with us or if you want to support the show, please click follow on Spotify. That is the number one way to help out Chambers at the moment. Zara will be back in everyone's ears on Thursday. We sure will. See you guys then. Bye. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.